All right, I have, uh, today's New Year's Day, and of course, that means New Year's resolutions for some of us who uh, believe in that. And I looked up some statistics on the internet, so of course this means these must be true. 38.5% of U.S. adults make New Year's resolutions. Of those, the most common New Year's resolution, almost half, 48%, want to exercise more. However, 23%, almost a quarter of us, quit in the first week. Almost two-thirds, 64%, quit in the first month. Only a dismal 9% succeed in their New Year's resolutions. That's pretty sad. And why is that? Because desire doesn't equal success. Even though we have a desire, it's dependent on you to do it, and we ultimately don't have the willpower to carry out our desires. And so when we fail, all we can do is blame and condemn ourselves. But no matter how much willpower we have, even if we're in that 9%, ultimately, we will all eventually fail in something that we do, and we're not able to do everything that we want to do, and we face self-condemnation for being weak. Now, there's some similarity with this to the Christian life, because in the Christian life, we are also not able to do what we want to do. But Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to understand what that really means, the implications of that we have to understand everything that Paul said leading up to Romans 8.1. So meaning, we have to understand Romans 1 through 7. So, does that mean I'm going to preach through Romans 1 through 7 today? Yes. Nathan gave me three hours today. So, and I have six points. That's 30 minutes per point. No. I'm going to, I obviously cannot do justice to Romans 1 through 7, but I'm going to try to hit the highlights the key points of Romans 1 through 7, and I do have six points, so I'm going to try to get moving. And I'm not going to put any verses on the screen because I'm going to read a lot of verses, and I encourage you to get your Bibles out or pull out that Bible from the chair in front of you because I can only hit the highlights, and it's helpful if you can read it too so you can read the context around these verses. There are some extra Bibles in the front and in the back if there aren't enough Bibles in the chair in front of you, so please please feel free to go and get one. We're going to start on page 939. Please tell me if that's not correct, but that's what I think it is. And um, we're going to begin with Romans chapter 1. And the first point that uh, Romans Paul starts with is that God is angry against sinful people. And God shows his wrath to sinful people. And He describes the sinful people in chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, 
but give approval to those who practice them. What do you think of when you read a description like this of these evil people? I mean, when I read that, I think, yes, God should condemn evil people like this. These are the people that, I mean, if there is no God, I mean, what is God for if he doesn't condemn people like this? And we think that these, those people do deserve God's wrath. Where is justice in the world if God doesn't give them wrath? Well, Paul anticipates people like me. And he goes on in chapter 2, turn the page, at least in my Bible. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment, God, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul's writing to the Roman church, and he's saying, yes, God's wrath is going to be revealed against those people, but guess who those people are? Those people include you. You judge those people, and you do the very same things that you're judging those people for doing. So what is it that those, that those people and me are doing that God is condemning them for? Well, we have to go back to chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, to see what it is that they are doing that's so bad. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They turned away from God and started worshiping idols. And although we don't worship birds and animals and creeping things today, we do worship idols today. What are the idols that we worship? Nathan already named them, some of them in his prayer. Fame, success, fortune, career, family, fitness. A common God that today society tells us to worship is self. Be true to yourself. Just be you. No one can tell you how to be true to yourself except you. Live your own truth. Has anyone ever heard things like this before? Self or truth is defined personally by your own feelings. Don't impose an external standard on yourself. We see this very clearly, especially in the transgender issue debate that goes on today. But if we just think a little bit about this type of idolatry of self and how self is divined by your feelings, we realize that this falls apart, this logic falls apart very quickly. For example, boy loves girl. Girl doesn't love boy. So how can they both be true to their feelings? Or, son tells dad, I'm sad. 
I feel worthless. What is the dad saying? Be true to yourself. If you feel worthless, you are worthless. No, no, no. Or daughter tells mother, Mom, I feel fat. What does the mom say? If you feel... No, right? (laughs) No, no. That leads to all sorts of problems, right? The reality is that feelings are fleeting. And in fact, feelings are often wrong. And that's what the ultimate sin of idolatry is, is worshiping something other than God. Worshiping, and they could be good things. I mean, it's, it's good to love yourself, but when you love yourself more than you love God, that's when it becomes idolatrous, and that's when it becomes wrong. Augustine defines sin as disordered love, loving things more than we love God. And, 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 you know, loving self is good, right? The Bible says our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we can't love ourselves more than we love God because then we will never be satisfied by loving temporary things. We will only be satisfied by loving the eternal thing, which is God. When we love other things, when we become idolaters, and worship idols, then the passage Romans 1, 28 to 32 is, are the consequences of our idolatry. So that's the first point. Uh, so here's the first point. We are all sinful, okay? Where do we see this? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's point number one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, some of you might say, well, yeah, I mean, all have sinned. All that means is nobody's perfect. I mean, we know that nobody's perfect. It's not that big a deal, right? Nobody's perfect. I mean, we're still better than most people. I mean, look at the people around us. Okay, well, at least look at the people on TV. I mean, we're better than those murderers and thieves. I mean, we live pretty good lives. We live moral lives. I mean, if we look at the Ten Commandments, and we use the Ten Commandments as a moral test, I mean, we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't lie. Well, you know, white lies don't count, of course. We don't lie. We don't commit adultery. We don't covet, you know, at least now that we got what we wanted from Santa, we don't, we don't covet. We listen to our parents, when they're being reasonable, at least. We don't work on weekends. We don't curse. We don't make actual idols and bow down to them. I mean, maybe we do have some idols sometimes. Sometimes, you know, so like nine and a half out of ten, all right? I mean, that's pretty good, right? That's a, that's a solid A. You guys ever, when you were in school, you, you, you turn in a test and you think, oh, yeah, that was a piece of cake. And then you get your test back and you, like, totally bombed it. You know that feeling? Well, this is when you think you got a nine and a half out of ten and you get your test back and it's a big, fat zero. And at first, you're, like, shocked. Like, what? How is that right? And then you have indignation. I mean, what's wrong with that teacher? There's something wrong here. I mean... We live moral lives. We give to the poor. 
We do service projects. I mean, we're good people. But what does God say? Point number one, all have sinned. And the problem here is we're trying to use the moral law in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. Right? We want to use the moral law as a standard by which we are justified, by which we feel uh, that we're okay. You know, like maybe at least if we do more good than bad, we're more than 50%, you know, then we should be okay, right? But Romans 3.20 tells us that that's not the purpose of the law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The point of the law was not, is not to save us. The point of the law is to show us how much we need saving, how sinful we are. And we can't use the law for something that it wasn't designed to do. For example, I've got a nail here, and I can say I want to use my head as a hammer. Some people think that's funny. <laughs> now, I can, now, my head is not, if you're not sure, I can tell you my head is not designed to be a hammer. But that doesn't mean I can't use it as a hammer. I can still use it as a hammer and try to pound this nail into this pulpit. But if I try to do that, what will happen? Pain and frustration, right? Pain, clearly, and frustration because it won't work. And because my head is not designed to be a hammer. And the law is not designed to save us. And if you try to use it for that purpose, you're just asking for pain and frustration because we cannot achieve righteousness through moral living. We can't save ourselves. And that's point number two. We can't save ourselves. Moral standards just show us how far we fall, how much we need saving, and they they cannot save us by itself. So if we are all sinful and we can't save ourselves, where does that leave us? Does that mean that we're all condemned to hell? I mean, what happened to God is love. Well, buckle your seatbelts. Here's where things get a little crazy. Um, Yes, turn the page a little too soon, sorry. So let's look at 321, chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Now, on the one hand, that makes sense because verse 20 just tells us that that you're not going to be justified through the law. So now we read in 21, the righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law. So in some sense, that makes sense. But what does that mean to have our righteousness manifest apart from the law? I mean, Webster's Dictionary defines righteous as acting in accord with divine or moral law. When we think of a person who is righteous, we think of the things that they do, that they do right things. So how do you define righteousness if not by their actions? Well, this is why this is such a radical concept in chapter 3, verse 21. The righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. And how does it do that? In 20, verse 22, it says the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I mean, that's a really radical concept because now righteousness is not defined by what we do. Righteousness is defined by what somebody else does. And this somebody else is Jesus Christ. And he says it again. And then verse 23, for often falls short of God. And he says it again, the same idea, and are justified by his grace as a gift. This is the faith through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So where righteousness is defined as faith in Christ Jesus. And that's really crazy that our righteousness can be defined by what somebody else does. Okay, It's like that morality test that we did so well on, and Jesus is in the class, and we say, hey, Jesus, what do you think of that test? And Jesus says, oh, you know, piece of cake. I got a 10 out of 10. How'd you do? You're like, oh, you know, I did all right. And then Jesus says, look, man, that was a rhetorical question. I know how you did, okay? I know you got a zero, all right? But then he says, but you know what? How'd you like my 10? How'd you like if I gave you my 10? And you're like, yo, wait, isn't that called cheating? And Jesus says, no, this isn't cheating because it's not that I just give you that extra little one to your zero and make it a 10. I'm giving you my 10, and I'm taking your zero. And I take the consequences of your failing the class, which is death on the cross. And Jesus takes that consequence for us and gives us his grade and takes our grade and paid the price for that. So this was not a free exchange. This was a costly exchange. Christ paid that costly price exchanged his righteousness for ours and took our sin upon himself and paid the cost, which is death on the cross, and gave us the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is a radical concept. And so this right here are points three and four. Point three is saved through faith, and point four is faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 22, uh, verse uh, 22, say the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I separate these into two separate points, faith, faith, faith by faith in point three, and in Jesus Christ in point four, because Paul elaborates on the faith concept in chapter four and on in Jesus Christ in chapter five. So that's why I have them as two separate points. So let's look a little bit more at point three, which is saved through faith. And at the end of chapter 3, in verse 27 through 28, Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Why is boasting excluded? You know, I can't, going back to that morality test class example, I can't go to Nathan and say, hey, Nathan, I got a 10 out of 10 on that test. How'd you do? Right? No, it doesn't work because my 10 out of 10 is not because of something I did. It's Christ did that for me. So I can't boast that I got the 10, right? So there's no boasting. 
but it's by, not because it's not by law of works, but by a law of faith. So what is faith? Faith here seems to really be contrasted against works. It's not something we do. It's something we, it's something else. And so Paul elaborates on faith in chapter 4 by giving us the example of Abraham. And so chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So faith is not works. Faith is not like wages that you earn, that you deserve. No, faith is, is not earned. It's a belief or a trust in God. Abraham had a belief or a trust in God. Now, what exactly did Abraham believe or trust in God about? We see in verse 13, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, if we go back, so God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a nation. And if we go back and look at Genesis chapter 12, we won't go there, but Genesis chapter 12, that was when God first called Abraham, or at that time he was known as Abram, and God told him, I will make you a great nation. At that time, Abraham was already 75 years old and had no children. But yet God told him, I'm going to make you a great nation. A little later in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham and repeats his promise to him and tells God, God tells Abraham that he will have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. At that time in Genesis 15, Abraham was almost 86 years old already, so 11, almost 11 years had passed, and he still had no children. And it wasn't until Genesis 21, when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90, that he had his first son, Isaac. And Sarah, you know, being 90, presumably was already postmenopausal, and so it was literally impossible for her to have children. And yet, she had a child. And so we go back to Romans chapter 4 verses 18 through 22, which summarizes this. It says, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No promise... <coughs> No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God even against all 
modern sense that, Abra- that Sarah couldn't have a child, yet Abraham believed God, and God said, this is your faith. This is evidence of your faith because of God's, Abraham's belief and trust in God's promise. Now, specifically in Romans here, for our purposes, the faith that Romans talk, that Paul talks about in Romans is not just a general belief in God, but a specifically a belief in Jesus Christ. And he says that, Paul says that here in, at the end of chapter 4 in verses 24 through 25, it will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Uh, sorry, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this is our faith. This is what our faith is in. in God who sent Jesus to die for our sins, resurrected Jesus Christ for our justification, which means that Jesus paid the price for our sins. This is what the gospel message is, that Jesus came and died for us on the cross to pay for our sins and to take so that we can have his righteousness because he paid that price for us. And so we have life based on Christ's righteousness. And what is the result of that? Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a sharp contrast to where we started Romans. How did Romans 1 start? God's wrath revealed against the unrighteousness of man. And now, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the gospel, to bring us back into a right relationship with God, peace and reconciliation with God, right? That's what the whole Christmas theme was, peace, peace, right? That's why Christ came, to bring us peace. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by the wrath of God. Saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us, and now we are reconciled back to God by Christ's death and resurrection. And this is how faith in Jesus saves us. Chapter 5 ends with verses 20 and 21. Now where now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so let's summarize a bit. The law wasn't meant to save us. The law was designed to show us our sin, which leads to death. Even as our recognition here, even as our recognition of sin increased, now the law came in to increase our trust, where sin increased, 
So even as our recognition of sin increased, the grace of Christ increased even more to cover all of our sins so that we can be declared righteous and be given eternal life in Christ. So what is grace? Grace is the free gift of God that we didn't deserve. The gift being the forgiveness of our sins. And that God gave it to us freely, and we didn't deserve it. We were his enemies, but yet he gave it to us. And no matter how much sin we have, God's grace is even greater and covers all of our sins. Right? That's what it says here in 5.20 and 21. Okay? And so that was points three and four, that we have faith and faith in Jesus Christ. Well, some of you might think, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, if God's grace covers all of our sins, and no matter how much sin we have, God's grace is greater still and covers all of it, well, then it sounds like we can just live however we want and just ask for forgiveness, and God's forgiveness, God's grace, will cover everything we do. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, Paul, again, anticipates that question, and that's exactly the question he poses in chapter 6, verse 1. What then shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And his answer in verse 2 is very definitive. By no means. But the reason he gives is very interesting. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? And this is a very interesting response because he says, he didn't say, how can Christ, who died to sin, how can we still live in it because Christ died? You know, he said, how can we still live in it because we who died to sin? But we didn't die to sin. I mean, Christ was the one who died to sin, right? Well, actually, Paul says that we did die to sin. In verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, or baptized into his death. So it's not just that Christ died. Paul says that we also died with Christ on the cross, and we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we died with Jesus, and just as God raised Jesus from the dead into a new life. He was resurrected life. So also, we were raised with Christ into a new life by the power of God. And that this is not just a symbolic thing. Paul is saying that that actually happened to us too. That we were dead and buried with Christ. And just as Christ was raised to a new life, a resurrected life, so too we are raised to a new life, that we are new creations, he says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, right? We have a new life. Well, what does that mean? Well, chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay? Consider yourself dead to sin. What does consider mean? Does, does it mean, well, you know, sort of think about it? Well, it's not really true, but, you know, sort of think like it's true? No. 
consider here, NIV says count. Count yourselves dead to sin. And the same word that is used there for that count is the same word used in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, when it talked about Abraham believing God and it was counted to him as righteousness. No, this is a done deal. This is a fact. This has actually happened. So when you count yourselves dead to sin, it's saying that this is the truth. Think of it as the truth. Count yourselves dead to sin, and not just dead to sin, but alive to God. So the dead to sin is the same as verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We are dead to sin. We died with Christ to sin on the cross. And we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? We are raised to a new life. So we, we have to realize the truth that we are not the same as we were before. We are new creations. Our death and resurrection with Christ is not just a symbolic death and resurrection. This is a real event that really happened. And Paul goes on to describe this in verses 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and have, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Okay? You were once slaves of sin. Now you are slaves of righteousness. You're a new creation. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral state. There's no in-between. You're one or the other. You're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And when our allegiance switches from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness, then sin becomes loathsome to us. We don't want to do it anymore. Our hearts are changed. And righteousness becomes our master. This is something that God does in our hearts. This is not something that we do to ourselves. Paul goes on to describe it further in verses 20 to 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and is end eternal life. Okay, so Paul says again, there's only two options. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God. Before you turn towards God, you're a slave of sin and you're living under the moral law, which only leads to death because you can't save yourself through the law. You're a slave of sin. I mean, in fact, you're a slave to something. Before, you were, before when you're a slave to sin, you're a slave to your desires, you're a slave to the wrong things that you wanted to do. And now that you turn towards Christ, you're a slave, you become a slave to God. I mean, does that mean that we're just trading one master for another? We're still a slave, right? But no, it's not the same thing because God is a perfect, loving father. He's not an evil master who's using us for his purposes. He's using us. He's doing things for us, for our good, because of his love for us. I mean, there's no better master to have. 
that we would want to be a slave to God. We want God to be our master because he will give us the best things. And when we become a slave to God, we now have a very different relationship with sin. We're no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer controls us because we died to it on the cross. Because it has no control over us, because it doesn't ultimately control our destiny and lead us to death. We are free from death because Christ took that death upon himself. And so sin no longer controls us. We are, no, we are under new management. And what role, what, what role do we play in this process? Nothing. This was all the actions of God and Christ on the cross. But just because we're no longer a slave to sin, does that mean that slave sin no longer has any control over us? Well, that's not our lived reality. So what does it mean that we are dead to sin and that we're no longer a slave to sin? What does that mean from a day-to-day perspective? Well, even Paul struggled with sin. In chapter 7, verses 15 through 19, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. And if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, but I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does anyone identify with Paul here? That the good you want to do, you can't do, and then the things that you don't want to do is what you end up doing? Well, let me give you some hope. If you get frustrated by that and you think, why is this that I can't never get it right? The very fact that you struggle with sin is evidence that you are no longer a slave to sin and that you are a slave to God because God is the one that changes our hearts and gives us the desire to do the right thing. Okay, so take hope. Your struggle evidence that you are in the Lord. And Paul himself struggled as well. Okay, so don't get so discouraged that you continue to struggle over the same things. And just because now we're a slave of God doesn't mean that our old habits just fall away and are gone, right? We are addicted to sin. It's not just something, a switch that we turn off and we're done with. Whether it's pornography, or disobedience, or anger. Sin gives us short-term benefits, whether it's pleasure, satisfaction, relief, or self-justification. We get short-term benefits from sin, even if we have long-term regret. But that short-term benefit is very, can be very powerful and very difficult to overcome because our flesh is sinful. And we are not always able to overcome our sinful flesh. And this is a lifelong struggle for the Christian. And Paul says it, summarizes it in chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive 
to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul wants to do his right thing, and his allegiance has been changed from sin to righteousness, right? Because he's already been justified. He already accepted Christ. Christ has already saved him. So why is Paul wretched? Because he still struggles with sin. He's still unable to do what he wants to do. He's ultimately unable to save himself. And who, but who will save him? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ will ultimately deliver us from the curse of sin. One day, we are assured victory over sin. We have the promise of eternal life. Until then, as Christians, we struggle daily with sin. And it's our responsibility to continue in that struggle until one day we see Christ again. So how do we do that? What is the role of willpower? Are we supposed to try harder in our fight against sin? Well, yes and no. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We do have a responsibility to work harder in our struggle against sin. But we have to understand When we work hard on our struggle against sin, it's not to earn our salvation because God has already saved us. We can't earn our salvation, right? It's just like trying to pound my head, use my head to pound that nail. We can't save ourselves. But once we know that God has saved us, we know that we are no longer a slave to sin. We are a slave to God. And so we have a responsibility to live out our true selves as slaves of God. That is where we try to work harder, to live out the new reality that we are new creations. And so willpower is important, but it's, it's only important because it comes from a changed heart, a changed heart that only comes from God working in us. Now, willpower again, is is good, but it's only so good when we struggle against sin, and it's, in fact, only effective against very weak temptations. So, for example, if you offer me a jalapeno pepper and say, here, come on, why don't you try and eat this? I can have very good willpower and say, eh, that's okay, I'll pass, because that is a very weak temptation for me, a temptation that I can overcome on my own willpower. But now you offer something else to me, like a red bean bun, or Remick and Sarah came over for our holiday CD party and, and brought these amazing cookies. You know, if you were to offer me one of those, that would, that would take quite a, a, a large, a lot more willpower for me to refuse. But it's only when we exercise our willpower that our willpower gets stronger. That's true for anything in life. You have to work at it to make it better, and so we do have to exercise our willpower to make it better, to make it stronger, and it's our willpower plus the changed heart that Christ gives us that is what saves us. 
because we are no longer a slave to sin, a slave to God. So we have to live in the reality, right? Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your moral bodies to make you obey its passions. Don't do it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. That requires a changed heart from God and requires willpower from you. And so it is a bit of a paradox, this whole concept of, is it, am I saving myself or is it God that's saving me? I mean, it's sort of like predestination and free will. Which one is it? Is it predestination or is it free will? Well, both are true. In some way, both are true. And so God is the one who saves us. Clearly, we cannot save ourselves. But yet we still have responsibility to work hard to live in the reality that we are saved by God. And we have to not let sin reign in our bodies. I hope that was clear. That's what that was. I spent a lot of time thinking about that because that was, that's sort of a, it seems to be a very, in my mind too, a very hard concept of how much is willpower involved in our salvation. And on the one hand, it's not at all. God is the one who saves us. We cannot save ourselves. But once we are saved, we have the responsibility to live in the reality that we are saved, that we are slaves of God. Right? We have that responsibility, and that requires effort on our part. All right. Well, so uh, I see it's, I know that Abby's been looking at her watch. I need to get moving. So point one, all have sinned. Point two, we, can save, we can't save ourselves. Point three, we, have, we are saved through faith. Point four, in Jesus Christ. And point five, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Okay, point five is we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so where does that all lead us? That leads us now to point six. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. Those of us who are in Christ are not condemned. Now, those who aren't in Christ are condemned. But those who aren't in Christ are not in condemned. And why is that? Because verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Right? We're no longer under the, under the law of sin and death. We're now under the law of spirit and life. And so we are free from death. We are dead to sin. And then verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God did for us what the law couldn't do. The law couldn't save us, but God saved us by sending his Son, Christ, to meet the righteous requirements of the law, which was death. Christ gave us his 10 out of 10, and he died on the cross for us. And then verses 5 through 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God. There are only two ways to live. You live according to the flesh, or you live according to God and the Spirit. There's no in-between. If you are in Christ, you are in the Spirit. 
to live that way. You cannot say, oh, God's grace will cover my sins and just go on sinning. No, that's evidence that you are not in the Lord. You're not living. You're living under the law. We cannot live a moral life to please God. You have to, we have to set our minds on the Spirit. Now, again, some of you might say, okay, I know I'm not condemned in the Lord. I'm saved in the Lord, but I still feel condemned because I keep failing. Right? Paul himself said he struggles. And we have to remember that there's no condemnation. We couldn't earn our way into heaven, and we can't earn our way to stay in heaven. Right? God doesn't condemn us to bring us into heaven, and he's not going to condemn us if we still can't, if we still fail, right? Because he knows that we're going to fail. So he, there's no condemnation for you, even when you keep struggling and failing, because your struggle is evidence that you are slaves to God. Well, sometimes we might think, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily feel condemned by God, but sometimes I feel like I'm not getting, God's not giving me what I deserve. And, and we lose sight of, you know, all the things that God has already done for us, and we set, instead think of the things that we think we need but don't have. And, you know, for some people, that could be a job or a career. For other people, that could be family, whether you're single and want to be married, or whether you're married and feel stuck in your marriage. Or sometimes for the children, Sometimes you feel you're stuck with the wrong parents, right? Why did God give me these parents? Why did I get born into this family? That's never, not a personal example at all. But instead of seeing, you know, and so, and we feel self-pity for what we think that we don't have. And I was finding, I found that I myself was going through this recently in my marriage. One night when I was, Unhappy because Cynthia and I, my wife Cynthia and I, had an argument, and I was thought to myself, what was the point of doing all of the things that I try to do to make her happy if she's just going to get mad at me anyways? And when I thought that, I realized that sometimes we have that same attitude towards God and we think, God, why did I do all this for you if this is the way you're going to treat me and you don't give me what I want or you don't give me what I deserve? And I realize that that is then a transactional relationship, that you're trying to manipulate God. God, I'm doing this for you, and now you need to do this for me. And that's what I was doing in my marriage. I'm doing this for my wife, so now she's supposed to treat me in this way. And this is not how God loves us. And this is not what love is. This is a transactional relationship, a manipulative relationship. God loves us for our good, and he loved us while we were his enemies. And if I love my wife, I will do what's best for her, regardless of how she treats us, simply because that's what's good for her, and that's what love is. And not because I love her, not because she loves me back. But if I only love her because she loves me back, well, that's not really love, but that's what I was doing. And so... God loves us because he loves us, not because of our performance. And so I need to, we also have to love God, and I need to love my wife, not because of her performance, but just because that's the right thing to do. So when we live under a transactional relationship with God, that's 
falling back into living under the law. And that is living under condemnation. But when we find ourselves doing that, we need to turn our eyes back to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his mercy and grace. All right, it's getting late. I need to wrap up. Let's move into some application. But if you are here and you are not a Christian, points one through four are really what's for you. Recognize that you are under the wrath of God. You cannot save yourself through moral living. You might say, God is love. How can a loving God condemn me to hell? In fact, Romans 2.4 says that God's love is designed to lead you back to repentance, to turn you towards him. So accept and believe. Turn your hearts towards God. If you're a Christian here, points five and six are really what's key. And application number one, remember, you are a slave to God, not a slave to sin. You have a new nature. Live in that reality. Believe it. Because this is the work of God. Turn away from yourself. Turn towards God. God has changed our natures. That we are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. That's the work that he has done in our hearts. Number two, struggle hard against sin. This is our responsibility. He has already saved us. So we are not earning our salvation. But now that we are new creatures, struggle hard against sin. And God has promised us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And when you are tempted, he will give you a way out so you can stand up under it. Okay? So struggle hard. Struggle hard. Indulging sin has short-term benefits, but we are here for the long-term benefits of living with God. Finally, application number three, don't live under condemnation. You did not earn your salvation. You were not saved by your works. Now that you are saved, your continued salvation is still not dependent on your works. Performance, God doesn't love us based on our performance. Okay? So some of you might feel condemned for things that have happened to you in the past, things that you've done in the past. There's no condemnation. God loves you the way you are. God created you the way you are. And God died for you the way you are. Some people struggle, some people feel condemnation because you continue to struggle with the same sins over and over and over again. There's no condemnation for you. God's love for you is not based on your performance. Your salvation was not based on your performance, and your continued salvation is still not based on your performance. Okay? There's no condemnation for you, but live in the reality that you are a slave of God. I will end Hope for 2023. Not only are the sermons only going to get better, but 1 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. The Lord is changing us day by day. It's not our work. 
It's his work changing us day by day, more and more, into his likeness. The end of 2023, by the end of 23, you will be more like Christ than you are today. Have faith. Have hope. Believe in the Lord. Our struggle is not in vain. All right, we're going to turn back to singing. And our hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ. Let me, but let me close us in a word of prayer as we go into the song. Let me close us. God, we thank you that it is your work in us that saves us. God, that we cannot save ourselves. And that is your reality, that we are new creations, and that we are no longer slaves to sin, but a slave to you, the perfect master. Help us to recognize the truth of that reality. Help us to live in the truth of that reality, that we can say no to sin by your grace and your power working in our hearts, and that we don't need to live under condemnation because you have saved us, because you love us, and just the way we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.